Jeremiah chapter 4, starting at verse 3. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah, you inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest in my fury come forth like fire and burn, that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Declare you in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, blow you the trumpets in the land, cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities. Set up the standard toward Zion, retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. A lion has come from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make his, your land desolate, that your cities shall lay waste without an inhabitant. For this, gird you with sackcloth, lament and howl, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. And it shall come to pass in that day. Well, let's stop at eight. We're going to change a little focus here. All right. So we're looking at this, and he says, Thus saith the Lord God, to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. So remember, when Jeremiah is preaching, Assyria has already taken the northern kingdom into captivity. He's speaking at the end days of Judah. So he's speaking to the two tribes of Judah and to, and to Jerusalem. And he says, break up your fallow ground and sow not amongst the thorns. And this is kind of an interesting thing because Fallow ground was tillable ground that was purposely left untilled. And it was supposed to help the next crop. And every seven years, the people of Israel were supposed to let their ground rest. Now, we do crop rotation. We've learned since then it's good to do crop rotation, but most of our farmers don't not plant their entire fields. They just you know, break them up at about a third or fourth at a time and, and rotate the fields that they plow and don't plow. So they have learned the value of this. And God is telling them, break up your followed land. All right? In other words, you haven't been following me anyway. Till your land. Get it usable. And don't plant among the thorns. And we've seen this over and over as we're going through Chronicles. We saw it when we're going through Kings. The people kept saying, we are following God, we're obeying God, as they did all the tradition and all the activities of worshiping God, and then went out and worshiped idols as well. And as we said, quit, quit planting in the thorns. Choose, you know, as, as he told to Joshua, Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will obey. And this is what God's whole desire is. And he doesn't want this play acting of obedience to him. All right, well, God, I'm going to come to church on Sunday, and then I'm going to live like the world the rest of the week. And I expect you to bless me because I went to church. This was their attitude. I went to, I went to, this, I went to synagogue on Sabbath. I went to the temple on Sabbath. I, I offered my sacrifices. The priest offered the sacrifices every morning and every evening. They went in and, and took care of the showbread. They took in, went in and took care of the, the menorah and kept it oiled. Uh, kept the altar of incense going, then did all the, 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 the three major feasts that everybody was supposed to come to, and the people were coming to it, but it was all just play-acting. I'm not going to say every single person was play-acting, but overall, as a nation, it was just play-acting. This is what God told us to do. We're doing it. Now, we don't mean it. We don't care. We're, just, we're, we're hedging our bet. We're covering. You know, we're worshiping these idols, and we're hedging our bet that we're going to worship God as well. And God is saying, stop. Plow your field. Get the word of God into your hearts. Get, don't plant these right activities in amongst the weeds. And it's the same thing that can be said to us today. Plow the field. Get it ready for the word of God to be sown. And Jesus gave the parable of the sower and the seed. And he goes, only one fourth of the word actually got into plowed, tilled land and produced fruit. The rest of it fell right on the wayside and got eaten up with no, with no chance at all. 
Some of it fell on the rocky ground and kind of looked like it sprang up and then was taken away because there was no root. And then some of it fell amongst thorns and got choked out immediately. So this is the same type of picture. Plow up your ground, get rid of the thorns, <laughs> be ready to serve me. Make your decision to serve me. Now the problem when, for, for, for poor Jeremiah was that nobody listened to him. He kept telling them what they needed to do and they never obeyed, they never listened. And this is hard. I can't imagine having poor Jeremiah's ministry. That, and even God warned him, you know, I'm going to make you like steel, I'm going to make you like flint. We read that, you know. You're going to stand hard, they're going to come against you, but they're not going to be able to damage you. And that was his call. Keep, keep warning them, keep warning them, and they're not going to listen. I would not like his call. That would be very hard to keep, keep ministering when nobody's listening. And he's got the right words. And then he says in verse 4, circumcise yourself to the Lord. Now this is going to be something kind of interesting because they first hear this. They're going, we're Jews, we're circumcised. All right, that's what they're going to first hear when they hear this statement. And then he says, and take away the foreskin of your hearts. Your innermost being is what this, the, the heart here is. You're the seat of your emotions. So he's saying God isn't looking just at a circumcision, physical circumcision. He wants you totally dedicated to him. And this is the same thing. I talk to so many people and they're going, well, you don't need to come to church. You don't need to read your Bible. It's all just a whole bunch of religious activities. And on one side, I understand what they're saying, if that's how you treat it. But if I have a circumcised heart that is seeking after God, those things become much more than just religious activities. Jesus said, you'll know that you're my disciples for your love, one for, ano you know, one for another. And this is very critical. Do we see love from other Christians? Are we giving love for other Christians? And this is hard sometimes because there are Christians that are hard to love. Hopefully we're not one of them. <laughs> But there's probably somebody that finds us hard to love at some point because of just things we say, do, act, and they have a hard time with it. But he's saying, circumcise your heart, your seat of your emotions. And when you see heart in the Old Testament, most of the time it is the word leb, L-E-B. And it is literally the seat of your emotion. It's who you really are. It's almost going down and saying we could put in soul. Our soul is who we are in our, in, in our being. It's where, it's where we actually make our decisions. Right? Very few of us make decisions through logic and, and understanding. Now, there, we might make, there are people who make some of their decisions that way. But most of us do not make decisions purely based on emotion. We are very much these people deep down in that says, I don't like this person. I don't even know this person, but I don't like this person. Or I like this person. I don't know him, but I like this person. And we make many instant judgments that then need to be followed through with logic at times. But here he's saying, circumcise that bottom most part. Get rid of that sin nature. Get rid of that sin nature and make it soft and pliable to God. And because that's not our nature. Our nature is not to be soft and pliable to God. Our nature is to be uh, maybe soft and pliable as long as you're pleasing me. And if you're not pleasing me, I'm going to be hard and mean. And that's not God's attitude. And he's saying, I want you to learn to be tender toward God and make your decisions based on what he desires. And that comes through the circumcision of the heart. And Jeremiah isn't the only one that talks about a heart that has been circumcised. Many of the prophets say the same thing. Paul reiterated this in the Old Testament. He said, not all of you Jews that are circumcised in the flesh are going to be going to heaven because circumcision isn't what gets you there. That's, you know, the works of the law do not get you into heaven. And that was their attitude. Uh, my parents circumcised me when I was eight days old. I'm going to heaven. Okay. All right. Uh, we have a particular religion that says the same thing. You're baptized as, a, as an infant, and you're going to heaven because you were, your parents decided to baptize you. 
and you didn't have any choice in the matter. Uh, you know, you know, the eight-year-old getting ready, the the eight-day-old is not going to say, "No, mom and dad, don't circumcise me. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want this." You know, that infant that's being circumcised isn't getting up and say, "No, mom and dad, I don't want this." Huh? Well, if they had a choice, if they had a choice, they might. But you understand what I'm saying, though, and this is what they were looking at. Mom and dad took care of me when I was. A young child, and I and I am on my way to heaven because uh, because of what mom and dad did for me, and you know. And this is where he's saying he says, no, it's not the outward activity. It is your choice of circumcising your heart and getting down to what God says. And then he could he could have been able to point to David, to Josh, uh, to Joseph, to Gideon, to all these individuals who actually served. God with all of their heart. You know, they were all circumcised, you know, but they also served God with their heart. And this is, this is what Jeremiah is saying here. Okay, these outward things don't mean anything. Same thing can be said to many Christians. You know, you're going to church on Sunday morning, your, your prayers every morning, your Bible reading every morning are not the huge thing, but are you tender and circumcised of heart toward God? Are you seeking God in your attitudes and your activities? And there's a big difference, and I know this group knows this. <laughs> you know, we're preaching to the preaching to the choir here. <laughs> you know, but that we know that God has changed us because we've opened up our hearts to Him, and we're seeing that change. We're seeing the change in our heart, and know the difference between just doing and being. <laughs> so, and then he goes, circumcise your heart, you men of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. What is he saying here? If you don't circumcise your heart, your flesh, that inner, uh, that inner being of it, not just your you know, the flesh that was done at, at earth, he goes, then your sins will be judged. And God brings judgment on everybody eventually. Now, it's hard for us because we look at sometimes and we go, God, why isn't this person getting instant judgment? Well, most of them are getting more judgment than, than we realize in the first place. And they are, are definitely going to fall in the, in the long run. God hasn't closed out his books until death. And this is good news for, for us. I don't want God to close out the books just because I do one, one thing wrong. Uh, that would be a terrible place to be. Well, you sinned, you're gone. <laughs> I'd have been gone a long time ago. Uh, so I'm glad that he doesn't. I'm glad he gives time to repent. I'm glad he gives time and sometimes has to do harsh things to get us to repent if we're, if we're slow. And I've been slow many times in my lifetime to respond to him. And I'm glad he has patience. And I'm glad that, yes, he made my life miserable. He made things hard. But God is faithful. In his fury, God brings judgment upon sin. Now, the good news for us is because of Jesus' death, most of that fury for sin fell on Jesus. Jesus took all the physical punishment that everybody deserved. Now that's hard to imagine how much pain he took, how much uh, indignity he took upon himself, the beating that he took, because he was sinless and the wages of sin is death. I'm a firm believer that Jesus could not die until he became sin on the cross because he had no sin and he had no sin nature. So it was impossible for him to die in my opinion. And this is why he could take punishment that none of us would, under, would, would undertake. And you know, this goes to the idea that death actually is a blessing in the long run. If there's enough pain, death is the deliverance from that pain. Now if you're not saved, then you get to go into eternal pain that there is no deliverance from. But for a Christian, Death is the deliverance from the pain that we're going through. And this is something that's 
almost wonderful. But Jesus was on the cross, and I truly believe that he could not die until he became sin. And when he became sin, now death could fall upon him. Now, I can't prove that statement other than the wages of sin is death. And man was created to not die. So this is my personal opinion, and uh, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that, but this is what I believe. All right? And here he's saying that it's going to quench because of your evil. And then he goes, declare you in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, blow you the trumpets in the land, cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities. So here he is saying, go out and make announcements. <laughs> go out and make announcements, make public declarations. Go out and blow the horns, the trumpets, the shofar, and say, assemble yourselves and let you go into the defensed cities, the walled cities. This is a time that, that he's looking at and saying, we are under attack by these enemies, so get out of the, the non-protected areas, get into the cities. Later on, he's going to tell them, just surrender, which means that he's going to be branded a traitor. Now, the, the king did not like him telling people to surrender, because from the king's perspective, he was being traitorous. I'm saying fight, you're saying surrender, you're saying that God says surrender. I'm the king, you're, you're being a traitor, and they put him in prison. And Jeremiah was thrown into prison a lot. A whole lot of times. Every time he opened his mouth, he got thrown into prison just about. And at one point, he was told, if you open your mouth one more time, not only am I going to send you into prison, I am going to kill you. And then he sends his servant in to give the message. To, to the king uh, because he says okay you don't want to see me anymore here's my servant giving you my giving God's word that God gave to me to give to you and you know my servant Barak is going to give it to you <laughs> can you imagine being Barak at that point if they want to kill Jeremiah what are they going to do to me uh, he didn't get killed but <laughs> I, I can imagine he was pretty nervous about going in to talk to the king with that message uh, at, involved with this and verse Six, set up a, the standard toward Zion. Retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great des destruction. I believe here that we're switching from the time of Babylon attacking to toward the end times tribulation period. And I know we get to the tribulation later on, so there's a transition here that goes between these. It could still be Babylon coming. But we're seeing here, he says, set up a standard. And a standard, if you don't know what a standard is, that's a big ensign, the flags, and says, this is, this is what you're going to battle on. And each, each division in the military, the king would have a standard. Each of the, the dukes and the princes would have their standard. And basically, the standard was used to indicate how well the battle was going to begin with. And if you were in a group that was getting beat up real bad, you looked for one of the standards of your, of your people, and you ran toward that standard to, to go join that, join that side that maybe was, didn't seem to be getting beat up as bad. Uh, and we still have the standards in today's military. Uh, the, each, each platoon will have their standard, will have their, their name, and you know, they're not quite used the same way as they used to be in the old days. But we don't usually go into battle with, with the standard flying anymore but it used to be very much a part of the battle. Now, with, now when you can get a sniper shooting you from several miles away, you don't want a standard up there to say, here I am, shoot me. Uh, but it used to be you put a standard up all the time. And it was a way to see, yep, yeah, yeah, there's the king, he's over there, he's doing well. Now, oh, the king standard's down and all of a sudden morale would go way down. And if you're familiar with the history of these older battles, when, when the person, when the standard bearer was shot or killed, there were always designated people that it was their job to pick the standard up and keep moving with the standard because that standard could not go down because that would destroy morale. And especially the king standard. 
or the general standard, you know, you know, it could not go down because that would hurt morale. So you'd have, okay, you know, we got a corporal or whatever carrying the standard. If he gets, if he dies, you and you are the ones to make sure <laughs> that this gets picked back up and gets put back in and gets lifted back up because that would keep morale. People would look and go, yep, there, there it is. They're still moving forward. They're still standing on the hill, whatever it might be. And it was a big deal for the standard. And he says, put the standard toward Zion. In other words, surround Zion with the standard. Lift it up. Make sure people understand that Zion is still strong. And remember, Zion is the poetic name of Jerusalem. All right, so when you see Zion, they're talking about Jerusalem and or the entire Israel nation, but usually it's very specific to, to Jerusalem in particular. And it's been taken over in years, you know, when we talk about Zionism, you know, and it's used to be, you know, as a derogatory statement of, of Judaism, but it is literally supposed to be Jerusalem. And so this is what he says, make that standard stand and it says, retire not. In, in this idea of retiring here is don't take refuge. Right? Don't retreat. The standard bearer was not to retreat, especially on his own decision. And standard bearers have always been the target of the enemy. All right? They're the second, they were the second most important person in that, in that group to attack. Uh, the top one would be the, the leader, and then the standard bearer. And then over the years, uh, there got to be this rule that you didn't shoot officers. You didn't kill the officers. Uh, during the American Revolution, America, the Americans did not obey the rules of war. We shot officers. We would hide behind trees. We didn't, we didn't form lines in front of them. We hid behind trees and walls, and we shot officers. Why? Because the next officer was 4,000 miles away by ship, he wouldn't be replaced for six months. So we shot as many officers as we could. And we did not follow the rules of war for, the, for that period of time. In Europe, they didn't shoot officers for the biggest reason was you were shooting your, shooting your cousin or your, or your, or your fellow, you know, fellow family member because all the officers were of royal blood. So you didn't shoot your, you didn't aim at your, at your cousins over on the other side. You, you shot the, the peasants that were lined up against you. Uh, and Americans, you know, broke all those rules. And uh, in here, in this day, during the medieval days and earlier in this period of time, they really did go after the kings because if you got the king dead, then you demoralize the army. Uh, you just killed the king. You know, now they're going to have to go back, regroup, promote, promote his kid or promote somebody to, to, be, the new, to be the new king of the, of the land. So they oftentimes aimed. They would rain a hail of arrows over into the king. And, and it's an amazing thing, if you've ever watched any of the old movies in that, from that period of time, how many arrows could be shot by these archers. And in their day, archers were not aiming at anybody. They would just put five or six arrows into the ground, and you'd have 50 archers there, and they could rain 50, you know, five arrows apiece in a minute, and they would shoot these arrows. And when you see those clouds of arrows, that is what actually happened in those wars. They weren't aiming at anybody, but if you have 250 arrows coming in at you, somebody was going to get hit. All right. Uh, and that's how they, you know, and the king's ensign would, you know, ensign would be one of those big targets. Fire in as many arrows as you can, and hopefully you're going to hit the king or the ensign bearer and the standard bearer. And he's saying all of this comes down to, you know, don't retreat. And he says, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. Now, Babylon did come from the north from Jerusalem because the Euphrates was to the north, kind of to the northeast. But to get there, they would actually follow the Euphrates up and come straight down north because the land was better to go that way. Otherwise, you crossed a great big desert. And horses don't do well in deserts, and neither do people. 
So it was easier, even though it took a little longer. You went, you followed the Euphrates over, crossed the Euphrates, and came down through the, through the valley of uh, uh, Megiddo, down that valley. And it was a much easier way of travel. And technically, you went faster than trying to cross the desert because you could only push your horses so far, so fast, and your men without a lot of water. And you'd have to go from oasis to oasis, so it was much easier to go around the desert and come in. So they came literally from the north. When Israel is attacked in the end days, it says the major army is going to come from the north. Gog, Magog, and those enemies will be coming from the north. That would be what is currently Iraq and Iran and the Caspian Sea area, which would include Russia, will come down. Then they will have an army, a multitude of army coming from the east. And then everybody else will come against them from every direction. Israel will be surrounded in the end days for destruction. And they will only survive because of God's pr protection. And this is when they've recognized the Antichrist and they're going to be... And the Antichrist is going to try to destroy them with all the armies of the world mobilizing against them. And we're, we're seeing the signs of this starting to happen even right now. We're seeing the enemies of Israel getting bold. Now, as we're seeing all this stuff going on, it's kind of an exciting time to, to live. Now, I'm not saying it's a good time to live. I'm just saying it's an exciting time to live because we're seeing the the coming together of the powers in the north. We're seeing the coming together of the flexing of the mu muscle of the east. We're seeing all of these nations starting to flex muscles and going, okay, God, is this the end days? Are we there? Are we, are we ready to go home? <laughs> is it time for us to go home? You're going to take us home? Or is this just the beginnings of the trouble? Unfortunately, I think it's just the beginnings of trouble. But it is starting to see this flexing of the muscles and seeing the coming together of the various powers and watching what is happening. And he says, you know, destruction. And it says, verse 7, A lion has come from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate, and your city shall be laid west, waste without an inhabitant. This did happen under Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar came in. He destroyed cities. When they got to Jerusalem, he tore down Jerusalem. He literally tore down the walls. He tore down the temple. He tore down the buildings. When the people came back into the land, uh, the rest of the cities were pretty beat up too, they, but they were laid waste, but he didn't destroy all of them. He knocked down a lot of walls. It was so bad that Ezra and Nehemiah could not get anybody to voluntarily live in Jerusalem. And they made a, made, they made a rule saying, Jerusalem is our capital. It's where we're going to run our nation from. We must have people living in the capital. So they drafted, I think it was one-tenth of the people in the population, and moved, moved them to Jerusalem. Whether they wanted to go there or not, uh, you know, Drew lots, you know, whatever it was, you know, they go, okay, one in ten are coming here. So one-tenth of the population is going to live in the capital. And, you know, I don't know how they managed to do that and make people, but there was a, that was a different time. But they go, we're going to make this, but why did they not want to go there? Because there was nothing to go to. It was a shambles. Now, they built it up really well. They, they reinforced the walls and under ne Nehemiah and Ezra they rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt the, the town, they rebuilt the, the temple and put all these projects into play and was, was able to re-strengthen it and make it a livable place again and it stayed livable until 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. <laughs> And Rome did pretty much the same thing. They tore down the walls. They didn't tear all, all the buildings like Nebuchadnezzar did, but they tore down all the walls. They tore down the temple and did a lot of damage to the city and then shipped all the people out of, out of Jerusalem, out of Israel. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar did. He shipped all the people of the land except for the poorest of the poor and shipped them all around the, 
Empire. And if you're familiar with Dan the book of Daniel, the empire of Babylon stretched from India all the way to Egypt and up into uh, what was Asia Minor or Turkey and up toward the Caspian Sea. So it was a very large area. And if you read Daniel, it talks about the 120 provinces and goes out to Italy, India. And sometimes we forget how much of the world was known even back then. Right? And even back then, they knew that there was a place called, you know, we call it China today, they knew there was a place over those big mountains, but they were not able to reach them. You know, trade would go over there because they could send traders over it, but the mountains made very hard for them to be able to get an army through there. So, you know, China and those places on the other side of the Himalayan mountains stayed relatively free of interference from the uh, Middle East and Europe. And even during uh, Alexander the Great's time, his kingdom went all the way to India, didn't go over the mountains. <laughs> he actually conquered all of Egypt as well, up into the Caspian Sea, and then he put, went in all the Balkan states and everything all the way to, to, to Greece and the upper part of Italy. So he had a very large kingdom as well, and then Rome got all of that plus all of what is currently called Europe. So each, each empire that followed got bigger. The next big empire to come will be the one world government under the Antichrist. And it will be bigger still. It will rule the whole world, theoretically, uh, where the Antichrist will reign over everything with no peace, no, no, no goodness. And then Jesus will come at the end of the tribulation period, and he'll rule. He'll rule the whole world with peace and benevolence, and it'll be a perfect, you know, a good time. Not, <laughs> not going to say perfect because he isn't restoring it back to, to, the, to the Garden of Eden, but he is going to re-lengthen life. The animals will be, be able to be tamed, and, and we're not going to have animals killing people. We're not going to have people killing people during that period of time, and people will live back to the point where they're supposed to, closer to where they were supposed to live originally. We were created to live eternally. Now, after sin, they, you know, during the time before the flood, people were living to be a thousand years old because of the pure DNA and everything. And apparently, the people's lives will be restored back to a long life. Where, not a perfect life, because sin nature will still be there, but the Bible tells us that if you die at 100 years old, you're a child. So I don't know, I don't know what makes you not a child. Three, 400 years, 1,000 years, I don't know. Uh, but a 100-year-old man or woman will be a child in that, in, during the Millennial Kingdom. And that's kind of an interesting thought. Uh, if I can be a strong 100 years old, I don't, care to live, I don't care if I live to be 100 years old as long as I have a nice energetic life. So... This is what he's, what he's talking about. He says, it's coming. They're going to lay this land to waste and leave the land without an inhabitant. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar did. Now, the reason I don't think this is necessarily Nebuchadnezzar because he did not leave it without any inhabitants. He left the poorest of the poor there. But I do believe this will be the Antichrist at this point because all of Israel that doesn't flee and hide from where God's going to put them are going to be put to death by the Antichrist. And remember, Satan's goal has always been to destroy the Jewish people. Always. Why? Because the Messiah was going to come from that people group. The, during the tribulation, he's going to try to destroy them. Why? Because God says they're going to be left and they're going to, re, they're going to be the main population of the new heaven and the, the, the restored kingdom during the millennial kingdom. So if Satan can get rid of them all, he can prove that God doesn't know the future. And if God doesn't know the future, then God is not God. And Satan can say, see, I told you, he did, I told you he's not all powerful. I told you he doesn't know everything. And this is why he's constantly tried to attack Israel. 
before Jesus was born, it was to try to get rid of the line of the Messiah because he said to Eve, your seed will produce a child that will crush the serpent's head. In, David, in Abraham, he said, your seed will bless all nations. <laughs> he comes to David and said, your seed will sit on the throne forever. So over and over, he thinned it down, thinned it down. So Satan has been keyed in. If he can get rid of all Jews, he can get rid of David's seed. But I think he's even more looking at, I'm going to get rid of David's seed. If I can get rid of David, David's family, I can get rid of the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, died and resurrected, now his whole goal is back to, I've got to get rid of Israel because Israel is going to be exalted during the end of the tribulation period by what God said. Now, Satan knows the scriptures. And he goes, if God is going to raise Israel back up and they're going to be the key to this, if I can get rid of Israel, then God didn't know what he was talking about and they become the target. This is why anti-Semitism has been going on for so many years. That Satan is saying, I need to get rid of these people because they are God's people. They are the whole center of everything. And his whole plan is if he can just get rid of them, he proves that God does not know everything and God is not strong enough to keep his people. And if he can beat God in any one area, he can say, see, he's he's not all that great. He's not the one that knows everything. He's not all powerful. And that is his whole goal. And why does he try to keep the church out of it? Because he knows that the church is supposed to keep support of Israel and lift up God as well. And what he means when he talks about the destroyer of the Gentiles, the church? The destroyer of the Gentiles. Yeah. That would be Nebuchadnezzar or the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to be a Gentile. So it, it, it's the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. So the destroyer from the Gentiles of the Gentiles is on his way. Not the destroyer of Gentiles, but the destroyer of the Gentiles. All right. So verse 7. So the destroyer of the Gentiles. So starts out with Nebuchadnezzar. So this is kind of, we've said this before. Most of the prophecies in the Bible have two answers to them. They have the immediate one. This is Nebuchadnezzar coming from the north to destroy Israel and move its people. But you find certain places that don't match up and you're going, okay, what's the rest of the, of it? All right, the rest of the story. (laughs) Uh, And in this case, we're looking at the Antichrist, which will come from the north, from the Babylon area, and he will be the destroyer of Israel in his anger because they decided that when he stood up in the temple and said, I am God, worship me, and their eyes are opened, and they flee from Jerusalem and get hidden by God, and he cannot, his fury is not going to be able to take them. And it, it talks about he sends, the Antichrist sends a flood after them, and God swallows the flood. It says God is going to defend his people so that they cannot be destroyed for those last couple of years. And Satan is going to throw everything at them, trying to destroy them. Because that's his last goal. His last, last big thing. I've got to be able to beat these guys because if I don't beat them, God is true. Now, why he thinks he can beat God, I don't know, but that's his goal. (laughs) If I can just prove that God does not know everything, that God is not strong enough, that God could not keep things. Because he wants to be God. Well, he wants to be like God. Make sure you understand, he's not saying, I'm going to be God. He says, I want to be like God. So he wants to be a God. He wants to sit on the side with God next to him because he knows he's a created being. But he wants to prove enough that I am strong enough to be able to defeat this God in, in some way. And I guess, ultimately, he'd like to take his place. Yeah. But his, his goal, when you read through, is I will be like God. And that was what his temptation to Eve was. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's never tempted people to be, to be God directly. But he wants to be higher than God. Well, the scriptures tell us he wants to be equal to. He wants to be like God. Ultimately, I'm sure that his great desire is to be above God. And if he can get equal to, then he'd probably figure I can go, I can take it to the next, I can take it to the next step. 
But his goal right now is just to be like God. And if you read this, that is, that's what he says. And this is his, his temptation to Eve. Eat of this tree. You know, God is trying to keep you from knowing good and evil. The day you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So his goal was the same thing to them. You know, not that you're going to be greater than God, because they were created beings. They knew better than that. But you can, you can be like God. You can be like God and just eat this fruit. We are living in the time of the Gentiles right now. Israel rejected their Messiah 2,000 years ago. God has not gotten rid of Israel, but he's put them basically on a shelf and said, fine, you rejected the Messiah. You did not do your job to, to minister to the world. It is now the Gentiles that are going to minister to the world. At the end or the beginning of the tribulation, the rapture will happen, the church will be taken out, and everything gets refocused back on Israel, and they take their place in center stage, and the church is gone. We will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We'll be enjoying seven years of, of feasting. You know, be a long feast. Hope we're very hungry, because <laughs> we'll have seven years of feasting and you know, partying and all of that, and then we will return with him to reign in this world for a thousand years with him. And the Jews will be the center of everything. They're the center of the the millennial kingdom. They won't be the only ones. There'll be a handful of people who did not take the mark of the beast that listened to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, maybe listened to the angel that flies around and declares the the gospel message. Uh, There will be a handful of other people that aren't Jews, but primarily it'll be the Jews that God has put a mark on and said, you're not going to fall. So it'll be mostly Jews that are left at the end that did not take the mark, and we will reign over, over the Jewish people as the bride of Christ, which puts us in a very wonderful position because we are reigning with him. We, now, we have our glorified bodies. When we're raptured, we will have our glorified bodies, so we get to live in the, the millennial kingdom without the sin nature. We won't sin because we have made our choice. We will have our grace. We will have all of that, and we will reign. But it's all after the rapture. God says, my bride has been taken away. Jesus goes, my bride's been taken away. Now we're back to Israel being the whole focus. For the last, for the last seven years of Jacob's tri- trials, tribulation, and the tribulation period through the millennial kingdom, and then Satan's last hurrah at the end of the, the millennial kingdom. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. No more tempter. Now, does that mean everything's going to be perfect and nobody's, not going to, nobody's going to sin? No, because we've talked about this before. We all have a sin nature, so we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We will sin even without Satan's help. We won't sin as much without Satan's help, but we all will sin. And so during the, tribula- during the millennial kingdom, there will be sin going on. You know, but I think God will stop a lot of it in its tracks. So because he's got this long life there, but there will be things going on. And at the end of the millennial period, Satan is going to be released. I believe that he is released for one major reason. What is the biggest lie that is still out there? Man is basically good, and if they just lived in a perfect, harmonious world, they would be good. And I think God is going to say, fine, I'll give them a good, harmonious, perfect world for a thousand years just to prove to them that they will still choose evil rather than good. Now, that's my personal opinion, you know, because that is the last big lie out there. The last big lie is we're all evil because we're taught to be evil and we see evil, so therefore we are evil. If we just lived in a world where there was no evil, we would all be good and we wouldn't make any bad decisions. Well, Adam and Eve proved that wrong long, long ago, but this will be the last, the last one. That's how do, you prove, how do you disprove that lie? Well, we'd have to be given a perfect period of time so that we're going, okay, We've had several generations that have had a virtually perfect environment. Satan is going to be released, and a large multitude is going to go on his side. 
mostly because he's ruling with an iron rod and making them be obedient. And there's going to be a lot of people who said, oh, here's my opportunity to go against God. I didn't want to be on his side anyway because he's been making me be good. I'm joining Satan. And we're going to overthrow God. Why they would think that, I don't know, especially after a thousand years of good, good reign. But people forget. And people will forget after a thousand years what it was like before Jesus came back. And there will be all of these things going on. And it will become rumors and history. How long does it take for us to forget history? You know, it's very interesting because most people are starting to deny, to deny the Holocaust and all the stuff that, that went on during World War II. Right? 80 years ago. 80 years ago. And people hadn't, have forgotten already. How much of it, and you go even further, how many people know anything about the American Revolution? We're not teaching it in schools anymore. We're not doing anything with it. People do not know the stories of the revolution. They do not know the stories of our founding fathers. Now, granted, that was, that was 200 and, you know, and you know, over 200 years. So, but you think, for after 1,000 years, how many of these people will have forgotten the tribulation period? And think, well, you know, this is, you know, we're bored living this perfect life. You know, we don't ever get to do the things we want to do. And it's all that king's fault over there because he won't let us do what we want to do. And they will rebel. And here we're seeing this whole thing that this attacker is going to come from the north. He's going to lay waste the land. He's going to get rid of all the inhabitants. So at this point, I do believe it's partially Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't get rid of all of the residents. He left the poorest of the poor to tend the land and then imported many aliens from other places. And what Nebuchadnezzar did was he shipped the, Israel, the people of Israel all through his empire. And then he took people from India and from the, the Asia Minor and from Babylon and he shipped them to the Middle East and, and Israel and filled their land with a bunch of foreigners. This had many benefits to it. You got no, no longer do you know your neighbor. You probably don't even speak the same language as your neighbor. So you're not going to gather together to make partisan guerrilla battles with them because you don't trust your neighbors anyway because you can't speak to them. You don't know who they are. You don't know anything about them. So you don't, you're not willing to join up with them. And what has happened you know, in our history, Hitler did not move people around like this. And what happened to Hitler? He swept through Holland. He swept through Poland. He swept through France. And what happened behind the lines? Partisan groups grew up all over the place. Nebuchadnezzar was one. He didn't worry about that. He just shipped everybody out. And he never had to worry about guerrilla warfare <laughs> uh, because there was not a nucleus that would be joining together to cause the problem. They weren't fighting. You know, I, I'm from Israel. Even if there was a group of us and I'm now living in India, am I going to care about Oh, well, this is now my home. I guess I'm going to stay here. Why do I want to fight? <laughs> because if I really wanted to fight, I want to be back in Israel. And Israel a long ways away. And so we have this going on, and, and we've moved from in this to the picture of the end days with the Antichrist. And we're looking through here, and he says, all of this is going to happen. You know, and it's very interesting as we watch things happening. I'm, I'm enjoying as I read my Bible and I look at end days and I'm going, wow, how close are we to the end days? Jesus said that they will be, people will do what is right in their own eyes. We are there. You know, I don't know how much more we can get to doing things you know, that are right in our own eyes, calling evil good and good evil. We're, we're having that happen everywhere we turn around. We're right on the edge. Now, without a revival, we'll cross that edge, and I think it's going to be very soon. And I agree with most people that I believe that there's a 6,000-year period in this world before God returns. How close are we to the 6,000 years? Pretty darn close. All right. If we go by the Jewish calendar, it's just over 100 years left. I don't think, it's, I don't think they have it completely correct. And then we will have our Sabbath rest in the Millennial Kingdom. <laughs> 
and then we'll have the new heaven and new new heaven and new earth starting six thousand years and we'll have a thousand years of rest or completion and then after that we'll have a new begin new beginning which will then last forever so we've got a lot going on and we are on that we're probably at probably the second most exciting time to probably live in all of creation the end of days probably the only other one would have been living when jesus was here most most of the population didn't see jesus so maybe it would have been a great time if i could have lived at his time and been in Israel, I am glad to be living in this day and age in many ways because it's like, all right, God, it's getting exciting. Where is it going? What is going to happen? What is our hope? What is our, what is our goal in all of this to see and to see the end days fulfilled? Now, the sad thing on this is I believe that the church is going to suffer dramatically before the before the rapture so if we are truly in the end days then we also need to prepare to let the holy spirit lead us and give us the strength to be willing to go through the suffering that that is coming now we're not going to go through the tribulation but things are going to get hard and things are already hard in most of the world for christians Right. There are places where Christians' life expectancy is less than a year. Now, that's not true in America. It's not true in Europe yet. Europe is getting close. But there will come time where Christians are going to suffer persecution. We will be imprisoned, possibly even executed. And we're seeing the, the stage being set we have laws in America that can be used against Christians in a heartbeat because we're patterning our hate speech laws after Canadian laws. And when we pass them, they're all going, no, it'll never be used against Christians. We'll never take away your free speech. Canadian pastors go to jail all the time just for saying something as simple as homosexuality is a sin. They go to jail. We have been threatened with that kind of stuff in America already. And we're looking at each time we have a problem, they take more and more of our rights away. And free speech is in the crosshairs all the time. It won't be long before free speech is taken away. And they're already talking about it. You know, say anything against the government, which is my free speech to do, and I'm a terrorist because I don't like what the government's doing. So when I start speaking about God's word that goes against everything that they're trying to make happen, I'll be, called, I'll be deemed a terrorist and put into prison and you know, actually will be put into re-education camps. I've got to teach you how to think. And the sad thing is those, those terms are already being used. And the problem is we talked about this. People don't remember the Holocaust. Do you, do you know that the concentration camps when they first started out were called re-education camps? They were sent there to be re-educated, to think correctly. All right? They worked all day, were deprived of sleep all night so that they could be re-educated, so maybe they could be integrated back into the Hitler society as law-abiding citizens of Hitler's group. Initially, Hitler gave a speech saying they were being taken against their own protection, from what I understand, before they even said re-education. Well, for their own protection, because he had already deemed them as being bearers of diseases. And we're, we're seeing all of this right now, even in our world. Anybody who doesn't want to obey the government and get wear masks, obey the government and get a, get a shot to, to it, are carriers of disease, potential carriers of disease. And they need to be taken out of the public for their protection and for the public's protection. And this is going, to, is going to happen at some point. All right, now they're finding out that COVID isn't the answer, but there will be another disease coming down, down the road very soon. Uh, we've had several over the years. If you remember, AIDS was going to be the thing that was going to destroy the world, and there was no hope of getting rid of it. And it was a terror for four or five years. COVID was one that they were really able to push, but there'll be a disease that comes around next. And they saw how much they could get away with COVID. And then the next one's going to push it even further and faster to the point where, and what it'll be, don't ask me. It'll be, but there'll be some 
new manufactured disease out there that is going to be worse than the COVID, at least, at least the way it's going to be presented, and probably be the one that causes, causes the over the edge. If you don't get your shot, you have to go to this little town where everybody doesn't have a shot at us. Well, that's what happened to the Jews originally under, under Hitler. They were put into ghettos. And then you took the ghettos and said, well, these are really bad places, and there's all kinds of diseases. They moved them into the uh, internment centers, and then they wanted to re-educate them because they weren't thinking correctly. It's a really scary, scary world, and what's really scary is how we are repeating history. And if you point out the similarities, they're going, oh, you're, nobody's being burned in, in ovens uh, out there. You know, nobody is being burnt in ovens yet. But in 1920 and 1930, nobody in Hitler's world were being burnt in ovens. They were just being segregated. They were being maligned. And then it got to, they were being burnt and experimented on and, and all the other things that went on in that period of time. Why am I saying all this? We need to be ready. We need to be ready and say, God, I want to follow you and stand for you. Because Christianity says all of these things that they want to say are good is bad. And those who are strong Christians are going to be attacked. Because we're the salt. We're the ones saying, no, you can't do that. We're the ones that have kept abortion at bay, even though we're losing the battle. We're the ones that have generally kept fornication at bay, even though we're losing the battle. We're the ones that keep a divorce at bay, even though we're losing the battle. It's us saying, no, it's wrong. It's not what God says. And even though the world is saying, well, you just get, just get evolved with us and get, get up where we're at. You guys are living in the, in the medieval days with these, these thought processes. You know, you should, you should be growing up. And we're the salt. We're keeping it slowed down. Granted, you know, can you imagine how bad things would be if it wasn't for the church saying, no, this is wrong. Once the church is taken out in the rapture, there will not be a voice saying, no, this is wrong. Think how bad things are going to get and how quick things are going to get bad. You want to believe in a dog-eat-dog world and the strong prevailing and and no, no rules. The, these pictures that we see on the, on the movies and stuff of the after the apocalypse you know, scenarios where the, you know, people are taking strong will hold nothing compared to what it's going to be like. The strong will manipulate the weak. And the weak are going to want to be protected by the strong even though they're being abused by the strong because ultimately if I'm, okay, I'm just being abused by one person or I can be abused by thousands of people. You know, I'll just go with the guys up there. You know, it's a small handful of people that might abuse me, but I'm protected. I'm safe. And they're going to mistreat each other in ways that we can't even imagine. And we need to be ready for all of this and understand this is what's coming. We won't see the worst of it. But we're going to see hardships. We might see concentration camps and, and re-education camps come into America and have to face death. But we want to be praying, God, help me to stand for what's right. And this right now is the greatest time. If we can't stand now for what's right when, when our life isn't on the line, we won't stand when our life is on the line. And this is important for us to say, I am going to take a stand. This is wrong. All right, well, you're going to lose your job, or you're going to lose this. You're going to, well, I'm sorry, but God says it is wrong. And if we can't take that stand now, there's no way we'll take that stand when, we're, when they're standing there with a gun at our head or a sword at our neck or whatever it might be and saying, are you going to stand for God now? And so we need to make up our mind to stand for God because it's going to be critical. It will be critical to be able to stand for God. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how, how much you love us. Lord, teach us to stand for you. Help us to get strength to listen to the Spirit's voice and his call 
and to be willing to stand for what is right no matter what. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.